And uh, the, the biggest lesson that my, my father taught me uh, was that nobody owed me anything and that anything that I wanted to have in the world, I could have as long as I was willing to work hard and to, and, and to earn it. And uh, basically every lesson that my dad taught me just as a, was another expression of those same principles. Um, you know, so for example, like one day we're watching television and I'm like, man, I sure do hate all these ads on the television, you know? And my dad says, well, without the ads, you wouldn't be able to watch the programming because nothing in life is free. And so lots of these lessons from my father about always trying my best and how nobody owes me anything and I shouldn't ever expect anything for free. And I, I try very hard to teach those same principles uh, to my sons, you know, in, in measured ways. They're only uh, seven and three years old. So, uh, you know, they're not out there uh, on a tractor yet working on the farm. But, but I just want them to realize the value of, of labor, the value of a dollar, how important it is to save. And, and most of all, I want them to understand that, you know, my financial success, whatever it may be, has nothing to do with them. It doesn't make them a better person. It doesn't make them a worse person. And it sure as hell isn't theirs. So whatever they want in life, they're going to have to work for just like I did. Well, thank you for um, kind of divulging that, that piece of information about the dynamics in your family. What do you think was the utility, um, say, for example, a, a father having in adopting someone like you? Because you always talk about the market dynamics um, between you know, relationships, even within families. What do you think uh, encourages one to just go outright and adopt you and want to have you as their son? That's a question you'd have to ask him. <laughs> uh, do you it's have any thoughts on that, though? I can just tell you that I'm not interested in adopting. <laughs> right. I, I, don't, I, I guess people that, uh, people that want that in their lives, they have a different mindset about you know, how they want to spend their time and their energies and, and what the payoff is uh, for loving uh, other, other folks. I'm I'm very happy with uh, my wife and the two children I have, and um, it's a uh, it's not something that I would consider. Well, that's a very difficult question to answer unless you have some idea of what that person means by success. You know, you know, a great artist, what he's going to do in his twenties is he's going to learn more about um, you know the the techniques he needs to master, uh, the different materials he needs to use, uh, different ways of, of of performing and, and perfecting his craft. And that's totally different than someone who sees success as becoming financially independent or successful in business or wealthy or influential in politics. So you, you, you really have to start by, by defining what you want your life to be about, or at least what you want your first efforts in life to be about. And then the most important thing that I will tell you is find the person who is the closest thing to what you're trying to achieve and find a way to work for them, even if you have to work for free. And the way you do that, by the way, is not by – as every time I say this, I get dozens of emails from people saying, oh, I'll come work for you for free, uh, including <laughs> – I got, I got an email like, like that from um, a famous uh, mob family in New York as well. One of their, one of their sons <laughs> tried to make me an offer I couldn't refuse. I'm comfortable. <laughs> Oh yeah. No, 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 no. So you ha- to get that, you what you really have to do is you have to bring something of value to the table for that person. So what you can do to get started, like if you wanted to get a job with me, for example, and you wanted to learn about global finance or you wanted to be a publisher or you were interested in online marketing or whatever the, whatever, whatever the dynamics of my business that interests you, what you would do then is you would send me things. So for example, if it's finance, 
you would research companies that you think are great investments and you'd share that work with me with, with no expectation of anything in return. That's how you build a relationship. You build a relationship, of course, by giving first. And so th- what I would tell my sons, let's say my sons wanted to be my, – my dream, by the way, for my children, and this is not what I expect them to do, but this is just my little personal fantasy. Right. Their, their personalities are very different. My oldest son is extremely um, – he's, he's, he's just got a beautiful, charismatic personality. He's kind and people are very uh, charmed by him very quickly, especially adults. He's a very charming little boy. I think he's going to become the chairman of Morgan Stanley because I see that as sort of the um, – the the, uh, the the penultimate or the ultimate um, uh, uh, a position for a guy who's a master at social relationships and, and is very skillful as an investment banker. And I can imagine him doing that. And, of course, that's what appeals to me because I'm interested in finance. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, my, my younger son is like um, – he is just completely over-the-top uh, energy and enthusiastic. And he is – in a way, he's bombastic and rude. Um, and uh, he's very stubborn, and I can see him becoming a great hedge fund manager because he, he's just going to always do his own thing in the world. And so if I was trying to help my sons in their 20s achieve those two goals, you know, what I would do is I would, I would tell Traveler, my seven-year-old, to start working on deals, to find investment banking deals that Morgan Stanley could organize and make a commission on and, and do, the whole, do the whole work, do the whole pro formas, and start sending those to bankers at Morgan Stanley to get their attention. You start doing their job for them and you start doing it better than they can do it and you're going to get an opportunity. Likewise, with, with travel, with hedge funds, that's even easier. You just start sending them really good investment ideas. And you, you, know, you, you, try to, you try your best to ingratiate yourself to these people. You ask them for a chance to intern. You say, look, let me work for free for six weeks. But most of all, you have to prove to them that you, um, you, know, that you can do something useful and you won't get in their way. But then the other thing I, I would stress upon them is to understand um, the objectivist morality. And I learned this at a very, a very formative um, dinner party, actually. And it was, at, it was um, at a restaurant, an Australian steakhouse overlooking the Boond in Shanghai, very early in the Chinese boom. This is uh, 98 or 99. And my host was uh, Doug Casey. And we were there. We were there with a real scumbag. There was uh, maybe about 12 people at dinner, and, and we had run into the stock promoter in the lobby that Doug had known from some – you know, horseshit deal 20 years before. And so Doug invited the scumbag to join us for dinner. And w- what I think is interesting is I like going to dinner with scumbags. Now, listen, I'll be very careful about what I'm saying here. You know, you have to be very careful who you choose to have as your friends because whoever you choose to have as your friends, that's who you will eventually become. Mm-hmm. So I'm not saying I'd want to have a, a dinner with a scumbag every single night and certainly not the same scumbag. But I do find um, these, these fringe characters very interesting and it just makes for a much more rich dinner discussion. So you know, uh, if I could, for example, I would love to publish a newsletter and have all the editors in this one particular newsletter, which would be called Fallen Angels. It would only be by people who have served time because they were convicted for a financial crime. So I – I'd have my columnists would be like Bernie Ebers um, and uh, Madoff and uh, uh, Ken Lay from Enron. And it would be the most interesting newsletter you could ever read. Not that I, I want to be very clear. I, I'm, not, I'm not idolizing these people. I'm not romanticizing what they did. They did terrible things. Right. But I do think there's something interesting about the criminal mind. So it was interesting to have dinner with this guy. And this guy was trying to tell D- Doug that there was nothing wrong with ripping off investors because they should know better. And he was saying that, that you know, morality in that way is very um, malleable. Right. 
I'll, I'll never forget what Doug, he, 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 he very emphatically hit the, hit the table with his hand, and he said, that is completely wrong. He said, you know, their morality is completely objective. And he said, all of philosophy and all of ethics and all of religion boils down to two simple concepts. And all of law boils down to two simple concepts. Mm-hmm. And those concepts, I'm sure you know what I'm going to say, the concepts are do not aggress on your neighbor or their property. And number two, and that's, that's, that's the basis of all criminal law. And then number two is the basis of all tort law, which is do all that you promise to do. Those are the two rules. And so what I'm going to tell my children is, look, I don't care what you do with your life. It's up to you. You want to be a starving artist? That's fine. Do your best. You want to be a corporate titan? Great. Go to Harvard Business School. Do what you want to do. Do what you find fulfilling. It is your life. But whatever you do, know those two laws and do not break them. Do not aggress on people or their property and do all that you promise to do. You know, um, if I take ideas from three or five different people and I I synthesize them in a new way and I come up with a new expression that is unique and mine, I've got no problem with that. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, right, if I take word from word from another writer and I put my name underneath the headline, that's clearly a plagiarism. So I've never in my career had any problem distinguishing what's right and wrong in those regards. Um, And uh, I don't think – I mean for me, I just – for me, the, the lines seem very clear. Now, whether or not a judge would agree with my interpretation or not, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I tell you, um, it is uh, – I wrote this uh, recently that um, – and, and then I read um, – I wrote this uh, this memo internally to Sean Goldsmith about the, this issue. And, and then uh, the next day, I saw the gentleman who runs uh, Elliott Management, the big hedge fund, uh, Paul Singer, I think is his name. And he had written an internal memo almost using exactly the same language. I don't think he plagiarized me. I just think we were having the same idea at the same time. And the idea is it is impossible to know um, how massive cre- the massive creation of money and credit will warp the world's economy. It is o- the only thing you can know is that the dislocations will be huge and they will be um, fatal. And l- let me give you an example of that. So let's say you're trying to stimulate inflation in a paper economy so that it's easier for your government and for your banks to repay their creditors. And that's exactly what's happened in the United States since 2008, since March of 2009, certainly. So we've created uh, $4 trillion in uh, new money, which is just mind, is mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. And we've created um, an additional, let's call it roughly $20 trillion in credit. And I say roughly because there's different ways of measuring credit. So, for example, the Fed decided to, to completely underwrite all of Fannie and Freddie's debts. And for a while, they decided to completely underwrite all of General Electric's credit as well. So, you know, that would, if you, if you took a more expansive view, you could maybe call it $30 trillion or $40 trillion or even $50 trillion. But... Today, there is around around $10 trillion more debt on the federal balance sheet than there was in 2008. So that's the number I'm going to use, and it's a round number, so it's easy to understand. So you've, you've created a whole bunch more money, and you've created a whole bunch more credit. And in the process, you have warped the, 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 the price of money. So you create more money, and it gets a lot cheaper, and so now you can borrow money for next to nothing. right? You can borrow money for 30 years at 4%. In the United States, even if you're just a regular consumer, 
you know, buying a, a regular house. If you're, if you are a, a favored consumer, if you're a bank or you're a hedge fund or you're a big corporation, you can borrow money for almost nothing. And then there are places in like Switzerland where you can you can be paid to borrow money. It's just right. it's mind it's completely mind boggling. Okay, so what well, the impact of that has been in the United States that capital investments have become free, and so you, and so the biggest thing you've seen in the United States is massive amounts of drilling for oil. <laughs> I mean, um, people don't realize the 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 massive increase in capex in the oil industry. So prior prior to two thousand five or so. You know um, the the total capex for the oil industry in, in any in any given year would be you know two hundred three hundred um, two hundred or three hundred billion dollars, and now it's well over a trillion. So that's a five-fold increase <laughs> in a period of five years. So guess what's happened to the price and the supply of oil? It's cratered. And so instead of creating inflation, what you have actually created is an enormous deflationary pressure in the global economy because you've taken the price of energy and you've cut it by 90%. So what I'm saying is, if you think about this, we, we, you just don't have any way of predicting how entrepreneurs are going to use this additional credit and this additional money. And the way that it's been used so far hasn't stoked price inflation at all. Instead, it's led to massive increases in supplies. And so now you've got a problem where, you know, you have this issue where there's probably more supplies of things, whether it's timber or coal or copper or gold or silver or real estate or oil, uh, than there is demand. And uh, so in, in, in the attempt of trying to cure deflation, you may be causing more of it. This is, this is, this is the point. You just can't know how the, you cannot know what will happen next, but, but you can know that there hasn't been, uh, you know, this much money created um, since World War II or since the Civil War, and that sooner or later people are going to lose faith in the paper currency system, and they're going to abandon it in favor of things like gold and silver and platinum and perhaps trophy real estate and perhaps oil. Uh, so I don't know when, but I do know that sometime going forward, people will flee will flee these 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 paper currencies, and I don't just mean the dollar; I mean I mean the entire system. 